0: Hi, everyone, and Happy New Year. Welcome back to the Infectious Dialogue podcast, formerly the ID podcast, where we are back for another year to discuss the stories of medicine and the people behind them. My name is Mike.
1: And I'm Nalan. Today, we have a futuristic episode in store. By that, we mean one that's really on the cutting edge of medical innovation and a glimpse of what the future of medicine could look like. Specifically, we will be discussing artificial intelligence, or AI, in medicine. This episode hits on so many different aspects of artificial intelligence. From the technical concepts behind it,
0: to how it's integrated into practice now, to even ethical concepts involved
1: when we use it. Our interviewers, Kathy and Natalie, had the pleasure to sit down with Dr. Haroon Syed Youssef and Dr. Melissa McCradden, who are both well acquainted in this area of ongoing research. You'll hear a little bit more about their qualifications and their introductions at the beginning of the episode. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Infectious Dialogue.
2: Hi everyone, welcome to ID Podcast. On today's episode, we are talking about AI in medicine, and we're so, so excited to welcome Drs Harum Said Youssef and Dr. Melissa McRadden. Welcome guys to the show. Thank you so much for having us.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
2: Yeah, no, it's such a pleasure. We're so excited to chat to you guys today. My name's Kathy. I'm a second year medical student at McMaster University. And with me I have Natalie.
4: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast.
2: So to get started, we're so excited to introduce you both. So I'll start with Dr. Yusuf. Dr. Yusuf is a general internal medicine doctor in Hamilton. He's also the deputy program director for the internal medicine residency and an assistant professor at McMaster. And in addition to these roles, Dr. Yusuf is also a clinical ethics consultant at Hamilton Health Sciences. Previously, Dr. Yusuf completed a bachelor's of science in physical anthropology and physiology at the University of Toronto. He completed his medical and internal medicine training at McMaster, and he also holds a master's in bioethics and Medical Ethics at the University of Toronto. Welcome to the show, Dr. Yusuf.
3: Oh, thanks for the intro.
2: Our second guest
4: today is Dr. Melissa McCratton. Dr. Melissa McCratton completed her undergraduate degree in psychology at
3: York University,
4: and she also completed her PhD in neuroscience at McMaster, focusing on neuropsychiatry of brain injuries. She has also completed her Master's of Bioethics at the University of Toronto in 2019. She now works as a bioethicist at SickKids and is an Associate Professor in Bioethics at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Dr. McCratton. Oh, thank you so much. Is there anything else that we've missed in your bio that you'd like to add? We know that the year 2020 has brought many highs and many lows, and I'm sure many accomplishments in your arenas.
5: Uh, yeah, I'll just add. I was I recently got my status as a project investigator at SickKids, and I'm affiliated with the Genetics and Genome Biology Research Program. So that's a great way to get my research kick started.
3: I have nothing to add. I think you guys did a more thorough background of myself than I even remember. So. Good job. <laughs>
2: No, not at all. We're so glad that the Google stalking didn't come off as creepy. So very much appreciate that. And congratulations, Dr. Cadence. That's a huge accomplishment as well. So Natalie and I were chatting about this earlier and that in our curriculum at McMaster, AI and sort of the advent of technology and computer science isn't touched on so much in our curriculum. And so that's a huge gap and why we wanted to talk about this on our show because we are so illiterate when it comes to what artificial intelligence is and how that impacts medicine. Our first question is, what is artificial intelligence for our listeners and ourselves who are not that familiar with the topic?
5: Sure. So AI, artificial intelligence, is actually encompasses a number of different fields, including philosophy, computer science, psychology of language, mathematics. Um, but in medicine, generally, what we're talking about is the use of what's called machine learning, which is the computational technique, which effectively accomplishes intelligent-like behavior. So we can think of things like giving a probable diagnosis or a risk score or other sorts of predictions through the use of machine learning. And so when we call it AI, generally what we're talking about is a system that is taking in incoming data from active patient cases and providing predictions to help that individual patient. So machine learning is the means by which we achieve an AI system in clinical care.
2: I see. When you talk about machine learning and taking in data and sort of applying it to like a specific patient or encountering new data, is that the most simplified version? Like when I think about Siri or the Netflix recommendations were based on your searches that gives you recommendations or based on your previous searches, is it almost like that, but in a different context?
5: Yeah, so all of the things that you mentioned, they also use um, different modalities of machine learning. And generally what we're talking about with machine learning is you have a set of inputs, which is the data, and you're trying to get to an output, which is the prediction. So in the context of medicine, the inputs might be information that comes from your electronic medical record, from images, from lab test results, and a machine learning algorithm will integrate all of these sources of data, or sometimes it can be very narrow in a particular source of data, such as imaging. And an output might be something like a tumor as benign or malignant, or it might be diagnosis is present or not present, or it might be an estimation of risk for developing a particular kind of diagnosis. These are the kinds of things that machine learning can use to map. And when we say that it's learning, What we really mean by that is the computer is looking at what has happened in previous cases and using that information to try and predict in future cases or cases that the computer has not yet encountered and so when we talk about developing an algorithm the algorithm is developed on all of those past cases so we know that the labels or the outputs, we know that those things really happened to patients. And ultimately the goal is to learn the relationships so that when you use it in the real world clinical environment, you can predict some of those things before they actually happen.
3: And so typically that algorithm is learning off of previous large data sets that can help it make these predictions.
4: Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's really, I think, important for us to get to know AI in medicine and to at least begin to understand what it is. And like Kathy mentioned, it's something that's just not touched on in our curriculum. So I appreciate that description and, and explanation. I'm curious, and this might be a question that both of you want to tackle. When did you first become interested in AI in medicine or AI in general?
3: So I, I think um, I first became uh, interested when there was an article, I think it was in Nature by Eric Topol about AI and medicine, how it would change uh, the future of the way physicians work. And I found that that article was very interesting. It was an engaging article, but it also you know, just struck me as this is something important to learn about because it's going to impact the way I practice. It's going to impact my patients. And you know, in many ways, it's going to impact the scope of my careers to some degree as well. So that's what got me interested in it by no means like an expert in the area, but that's what initially got me interested in it. And lately, what I've gotten interested in is how we could possibly use machine learning algorithms, particularly analyzing the content of speech to use those type of algorithms to both provide assessment and feedback for medical learners, particularly in settings where they're not able to get a lot of direct faculty feedback.
5: For me, it was a track that I didn't actually expect. When I was doing my PhD in neuroscience, at one point, was using a particular test, and my primary supervisor suggested I bring onto the committee Dr. Sue Becker, who is a computational neuropsychologist. And so, her expertise was in computational neural modeling. And I remember I spent weeks just trying to understand her papers so that I could be, you know, ready to speak with her. And I think I still barely grasp the concepts, but it's interesting because that exposure enough was such that when I started working at St. Mike's with a colleague who was doing machine learning. That training helped me understand, I think a little bit quicker, some of the concepts because machine learning, it actually, it operates very, very similarly to the human brain and specifically the visual system. And so having that background kind of really helped me wade into the waters. And then I actually did postdoctoral fellowship in AI ethics, which was with SickKids and Vector. And so part of this involved about half of the time I was immersed in the computer science world of the folks who were really doing this work. And then the other half of the time was working more in clinical ethics with the bioethics department at SickKids. And something that really kind of became clear to me was that the way forward is to integrate those fields. And so when we're talking about AI ethics, it can't necessarily be, you know, things that are developed solely within the silo of computer science that have ethical concepts. And the contrary isn't true as well, that we can't have ethicists developing concepts that relate to computational science. There really has to be a lot more dialogue between the two. And so I think that kind of integration of, you know, the science and the ethics for me is something that makes me really excited
2: and and I'm really passionate about it. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's so interesting, especially for distinguished professionals like yourselves to see where you land and how like that initial interest or like spark that you might have not recognized or thought you would be in this path, like how that's led to where you are now. So we always find it really interesting to learn about that. So thank you. And Dr. Grodin, you mentioned something that I wanted to dig into a little bit deeper and that's sort of the silos between different fields. Even having this conversation with Dr. Yusuf and yourself today, I think speaks volumes to how collaborative this field needs to be, but we were curious in terms of if you guys think that AI is seeing more integration between different fields and whether or not there needs to be more collaboration moving forward.
5: Yeah, I'm seeing a lot more, particularly between computer science and clinicians. In the past year, particularly, there's been quite a strong recognition within the field of healthcare machine learning that the task of prediction itself is not necessarily an automatic benefit to patients. And so in order to actually benefit patients, there's really, there's a lot more thoughtful work that needs to be integrated within, first of all, the knowledge system of medicine itself, but also within the clinical workflow. And really trying to kind of figure out exactly where to situate the model and what task that model can actually perform is really, really critical. And it necessarily involves collaboration. And then you're also seeing at the same time within the machine learning world, a lot more pull from areas like sociology or critical race theory or philosophy to really kind of help propel the field forward.
3: Yeah. Dr. McCradden brings up a, a great point, which is that AI and healthcare needs to model what has always been a part of clinical research, whether it be basic science or epidemiology. As physicians, we work very closely with basic scientists, with PhDs in statistics, epidemiologists, and we work together closely because we often bring them those burning questions that are both important to clinicians and patients. And they provide a lot of the technical expertise to develop great studies and effective tools for our patients. So I think AI has to be a lot like that. It can't be like Uber and taxi drivers where... They just drop an app in and disrupt the entire field. Like that's not what the aim should be. The questions really need to be clinically relevant and driven by patients and uh, clinicians. And, an example of that is oftentimes I find in technology, like in the tech world that, you know, they define a problem and they explain why you need to solve that problem. For instance, maybe their problem might be patients who have headaches are not seen quickly and conveniently enough by their primary care physician and then they find a good need solution that makes it more convenient. But the the larger question we should be asking is, is that the most burning pressing need in healthcare? And I think if you'd ask most physicians or patients, that isn't the most pressing need. That's not the big problems we need to solve. There's no one going out giving a TEDx talk about how, you know, you can save one hour using AI or solving your headache issues. And that's the most pressing thing that needs to be solved in healthcare. So it starts from a foundational level where the questions that are being asked need to be driven by both patients and clinicians. And that's why you need that collaboration.
4: Thanks. That's really fascinating. I'm curious then we're talking about the collaboration and sort of attacking these larger, bigger picture problems in medicine with AI, but what is your opinion on the current state of affairs of AI in medicine? How, how frequently is it used right now? You know, we talked about things like the uh, suggestions that are made by Netflix or by our music apps, and, and all of that seems almost invisible when we go through our day-to-day. So I'm curious about how much of this is already in place in the clinical environment and how much of it is a part of our day-to-day life or will be a part of our day-to-day life as clerks and future physicians.
5: Yes, yeah, so the reality of that is that not much, particularly in a patient-impacting space, and people will speculate on the different reasons for that, But in my mind, I really kind of see more or less, there's two kind of main hurdles to it. And the first is that from a technical perspective, it's one thing to develop models that will run on historical data. And you can get quite good at prediction on completed cases. The actual integration of that model into a live data stream is a whole different story. It's very, very different. And it takes quite a lot of work and a lot of technical complexity and progress and iteration to really try and get that right. So we have a number of folks who are working on this kind of problem and trying to optimize their model for a live clinical environment. And it's quite difficult to do that in a way where you're still maintaining the integrity of the relationship that you're trying to model with the data. And then again, working out some of those issues about feasibility and where exactly should you situate this model in the workflow. One of the big things that came just this September, actually, which was a part of, was uh, the development of the clinical trial guidelines for clinical trials involving AI. So as Dr. Yusuf was mentioning, one of the main hurdles as well has been that in medicine, typically, we use evidence-based medicine, which consists of the hierarchical pyramid of evidence, and AI doesn't fit super cleanly there. And so for certain kinds of algorithms, it may be necessary to run a clinical trial to really prove that they benefit patients. But how to do that has not been particularly clear. And there was also a lot of consideration as to whether these models were even considered research or not. And then there's other models that may not require a full clinical trial, but they still require ongoing evaluation of their evidence. And we still need to do studies where we are comparing them appropriately to the standard of care. And you see a lot of publications that will say, you know, algorithm better than doctors at detecting X. But really this is done in a historical data set. and it's not the same as running a model in parallel with clinicians making that diagnosis in active patient cases. And so we need to see more of those comparisons to really understand the true efficacy of the system. And so that's sort of the other side of the barriers is in trying to figure this out because one of the main things that a lot of folks talk about is trust. And so from a machine learning perspective, there's been a number of different things that have been attempted in order to gain the user's trust. But I think that ultimately a lot of physicians and clinicians just wanna know, is this gonna be good for my patients? Because a lot of them will say, I'll figure out how to use it if it's going to benefit my patients, and I want you to prove it to me, that it will do that. And so um, I think that this sort of next step in figuring out how to evaluate AI interventions in a way that earns that trust and in a way that we can be relatively certain as to the effects that we can gain from using that system, I think that's really kind of the next step here.
3: Yeah, I agree with uh, Dr. McCraden. and like, I think AI is in its infancy in healthcare and medicine, a lot of room for growth. Like you see the studies where it's being used, it's typically being used in a function almost where it's triaging information for clinicians. So for instance, I think there was a recent study out of Duke where it's triaging patients who are going to a high risk of developing sepsis or to decompensate from sepsis. And then that feeds that information to a clinician who in turn alerts the treating physician. Right or it'll triage imaging and say these are concerning. You know these lesions on this image are concerning. That's where uh, right now it's primarily being used, I find. But even a lot of that hasn't. It's not widespread. I'd say the imaging algorithms that have been uh, developed are still not, I think, in wide clinical practice use, particularly not in Canada. So, but I do think a lot of individuals see room for growth. There's Babylon Health, which is provides some virtual care and uses some machine learning models to triage patients. is something that's used in the primary care setting. And I do believe it's functional in BC and it's starting out in Ontario as well. And so it'll be interesting to see how these models develop. And to Dr. McCradden's earlier point, she had mentioned how these models need to ask the right questions and provide the right data. So I saw one image from Babylon Health, which I don't see anymore, but it basically had it described diagnosis in terms of safety and accuracy. And it said its diagnosis was more safe or accurate than uh, physicians or nurses in a graph. And I found that strange because in medicine, we rarely describe diagnosis in terms of safety and accuracy. We use epidemiological tools like likelihood ratio, sensitivity, specificity. Uh, you know, I didn't really understand how they generated this data. So that doesn't help to engender trust when you're using statistical methods You know, the clinicians are not familiar with and have never really used in practice.
4: That's really interesting, thank you for sharing. I think as relative lay people in the AI space, it can be really easy to get carried away with the idea that AI is going to take over medicine and abolish certain career paths in medicine or that it's everywhere in the clinical environment. So that's really interesting to know, especially about sort of using historical data versus live data and how different those things are and the ways in which we research and actually assess the efficacy of AI. So I'm curious then, this is a bit of a two-parter follow-up. How far away do you think we are from having a big integration of AI in the clinical environment, in medicine, in patient-facing circumstances? And then I wonder as well, what area you think is ripe for AI to sort of infiltrate?
5: So the area where we're seeing the most progress is in imaging. And so there's a number of systems that are FDA approved at this point. And I think very recently in the UK, there was a system that was approved for reimbursement from the healthcare system. So there are some of those systems that are moving forward. What they're sort of doing is they're taking a subset of the task and automating it to better enable clinical decision-making. So those ones, I think, are a little bit, I don't want to say low-hanging fruit, because honestly, these tasks are really complex. But in radiology, there's a lot of potential benefit from going through these scans quicker because there's a lot that radiologists do that can be aided by AI. And I know know, radiologists, they were some of the first on the pecking order from folks like, you know, Jeff Hinton and such. But actually I have to say, I have colleagues who are radiologists, and they're really leading the charge of AI in a lot of cases, I think, because they see the benefit and because they see, you know, what we can gain from streamlining some of these processes, both for patients and for themselves in terms of their workflow. And I think that diagnosis is another area where we really have a lot to gain. One of the places that, you know, many experts tend to think of as being the most, the most prime for AI is in reduction of medical errors, because machines will make errors, but in a systematic way, and we can mitigate those and we can attend to those as part of our evaluation process. But with humans, because of the complexity of our systems and the demands of the job, it is the case that sometimes things get missed, whereas computers are more consistent. And so I think that it can help in that regard by providing sort of that baseline level of consistency. And also it provides an eyes on the patient, even when the clinician might be elsewhere. So particularly in a setting like the ICU where there's huge demands on the staff. It can be very, very busy. If you have a system that is continuously monitoring physiologic data, for example, and can alert someone to potentially troubling patient trends, that can be something that can be of immense benefit. So for me, I think those are kind of the particular areas, but I do think it's going to be piece by piece. And I also think it's going to be the case that the cream is going to rise to the top in this situation, because you see already that there are certain systems, like the one that Dr. Yusuf mentioned, Sepsis Watch by the Duke team. This is a group that spent years developing this, years, and they ran an RCT and they're going to publish very shortly. And I think that some of these systems that are really developed in a fulsome way are really going to set the standard for the field. And so I think we'll see more and more systems being developed in a similar way, but I do
2: think it's gonna be piece by piece. Wow. That's such a good overview of where we're currently at, especially for learners like us, who's very, very new to the space. And on that note, we're just curious if you guys could give a very high level overview around who the major players are, where you guys see a lot of work being done in AI and medicine, like in Canada, and then maybe internationally as well. Well, it feels self-serving to say SickKids, but (laughs) it is probably
5: true. SickKids has really kind of taken the step to try and integrate AI and machine learning in a very large way. And uh, you see a lot of work coming out of St. Michael's Hospital as well. There's a number of groups in the GTA who are working on this. There's work coming out of Montreal, I think, internationally as well. One of my colleagues was a radiologist in Australia. They've been moving forward, particularly on the imaging side of things. The UK as well has been implementing several systems and is very involved in the clinical evaluation scheme. And then in the US, we have a number of different centers. So Stanford, Duke, Kaiser Permanente, UPenn, uh, University of Michigan, These are all, I feel bad if I leave someone off this list, but, you know, there's a number of centers that are really trying to um, push this forward. And again, with like a robust evaluative schema, because the reality is a lot of folks can develop some of these algorithms. But I really think that the centers that are doing the best at it are those that are like academic health centers who are really relying heavily on that collaboration between clinicians and computer scientists. (laughs)
0: Hey everyone, if you enjoy listening to the ID Podcast and want to hear more from us, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the ID Podcast. If there's a topic you'd like for us to cover in a future episode, please feel free to message us or send us a tweet. Thank you and enjoy the rest of the episode.
4: So, something that sort of came to mind for me during our discussion and something that I mentioned earlier was this myth or thought or scare that AI might replace physicians or certain career paths in the future. And I think as medical students who are just starting their career, this is something that's not top of mind maybe, but certainly on our minds as we embark on our career choosing journey. I'm always curious about the opportunity for innovation in different career paths, as well as whether or not that career path will look the same or even exist in the same way that it does now by the time I'm 50, 60 years old. So I'm curious, is that a myth or is this truth that AI um, stands to take jobs away from future physicians?
3: So you brought up the phrase replace. I I don't think it will be replacing physicians. It'll definitely change the way we work in the probably next two to three decades. I think in a big way, in, in many in places and many specialties, it will change the way that we work. And particularly in the field of imaging, I think it may make it such that a lot of the triaging, a lot of the grunt work may be done by the AI. And so the radiologist is able to focus on more of the high level issues, the controversies in the imaging. Uh, so it will change it in that way. And maybe because of that, you may not need as many radiologists to read the same number of reports. So it may mean that there may not be need for as many radiologists, but you'll still need radiologists to assess those complicated issues where there's controversy and where there's not a lot of data that the machine learning algorithm can process effectively. And uh, I remember in Eric Topol's paper, he talked about how that's already happened in fields like pathology, where, you know, previously you had pathologists reading a lot of blood smears. And that's rarely done now. It's only if someone alerts them first, if the automated counter and the tech alerts them to something, then they get involved. So I think radiology become a little bit more like pathology where they're dealing with the more high level issues. The second thing is because of my training in ethics, I think I don't like to give straightforward answers and like to ask questions. So I'll open it up to you guys. You know, medical oncology, there's a lot of good data. They're big data sets. And while they don't have widespread machine learning algorithms yet, There's a lot of good algorithms to help with decision-making in medical oncology, much more than I have as an internist or in other fields. And so in 20, 30 years, if machine learning is applied to this and you're able to make the decision-making even better, you may be able to have a machine learning algorithm that effectively prescribes chemotherapy to you, just like an oncologist would, because they're big data sets and they can learn that effectively effectively. And this genetic data, personalized medicine, so it's ripe for machine learning to work on. And the AI chatbot function, it can offer you empathetic and validating statements like, you know, I'm sorry this has happened to you. I see your resilience and your strength in this fight and, you know, offer you all these validating statements. And it may even be able to integrate you into a patient support group um, where you can share your experience. And so would you, as 20 to 30 years from now is a possibility, hopefully it doesn't happen that you no, know, we get cancer. Would that be sufficient for you? Would you be happy with that? Not seeing a medical oncologist and just having this AI algorithm do all that for you. It's offering you empathy. It's validating. It's prescribing the chemotherapy and it's referring you to a patient support group.
4: You know, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. Initially, when you started giving your response, I felt really hopeful because when you talked about radiologists maybe having the opportunity to work on higher level cases and engage more in the nuance of their specialty rather than continually diagnosing scaphoid fractures. That sounds really interesting to me to think that machine learning could take care of some of the grunt work so that your time is freed up to do something that's potentially more medically interesting to you as a specialist. But in terms of the oncology question, that doesn't feel sufficient for me. But then if i think about it a little bit more i'm not sure what an oncologist necessarily offers me beyond that it seems like the only difference is knowing that it's not a human being and you know i think this is probably a good bridge into sort of the ethical part of our conversation but it's such an interesting thing to think about because when i think about the demands of the job and you know our personal limitations in delivering care The oncologist that you see may not always offer the empathetic statements that you need. And you know, a machine may in fact be better able to predict what you need to hear in that particular moment or what your um, emotional needs are going through your illness. So I wonder if, in some sense, that a machine could actually deliver better, more empathetic care. Not to say that an oncologist can't, but I just mean given the limitations of our own sort of personal functioning on a day-to-day level, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity there to give great patient care through a machine.
3: Yeah. And so I think more than anything, it will change the way we are trained and our objectives as a physician. Because if there's something that's feeding you a lot of the diagnostic uncertainty and then giving you good management strategies, then what we really need to add is the human aspect, the empathy, the validating. And if you do it effectively, I'm sure you'll be able to do it much better than the machine learning. So I think there's going to be a, a radical shift in what's expected of physicians and the way we're trained, where we, we have the, those can meds roles, the non-expert can meds roles, the intrinsic roles of collaborator, advocate, communicator. Those will actually become much more central to our job as opposed to knowing you know, the differential for mediastinal lymphadenopathy.
5: To Dr. Yusuf's point, I think you know, the four of us are sitting here having this conversation via Zoom. Does anyone think that this is the exact same feeling that you get from being in the room together? And having the same conversation. Not quite. It's a resounding feeling that I think has been hitting a lot of people lately. And I think that that, there's something about the practice of medicine whereby that human connection is so salient within that context. And it's maybe the case that different clinicians appreciate and engage with that to differing degrees. And I think that we might think about how our current evaluative schema for, you know, letting people into medical school or advancing them throughout their training, how much of that is really related to those kinds of skills, to communication, to empathy, to listening, to getting the story versus how much of it is chemistry. And I've already forgotten half the stuff anyway. <laughs> but yeah, how, how much of it is kind of best suited to those roles in the future. And I think that that's very much a conversation that we're all having right now, because I agree that there's a lot of tasks that could be simplified in terms of process by the automation of technology. But I think that complementary to that, we have to make sure that our institutions and our structures are going to set up clinicians to be able to take that time because it also wouldn't necessarily work if we make that task more efficient. And then we just say, okay, now you can see 10 times the amount of patients in the same amount of time. I don't think we're going to get that effect that Eric Topol is really hoping for if we're to do that. So I think that part of the conversation as well is making sure that our structures and our institutions are going to set us up to be able to achieve that vision of AI and enabled empathic
2: medicine that we're really looking for wow it just struck me that coming to this conversation I didn't necessarily expect that you know our researchers our clinicians who are really focused on AI in medicine that the AI will actually make medicine more human and that the use of machines will actually enable us to showcase our humanity much more which I thought is just really beautiful and actually gives me a lot of hope
4: It also gives me a lot of hope. You know, Kathy and I are new to the clinical environment and we've just come from a couple of weeks in the real world. And I think something that can be a little disorienting about being in the real world, quote unquote, for the first time is all of the ideas that you have about being human with patients, spending time with patients, giving them everything they need to meet their emotional needs in their circumstance is just wholly impossible. And I know that for me was quite disheartening and Kathy and I are lucky that we're in a phase of medicine where we have the time to take with patients, but it has become quite obvious to me that that won't be the case for the majority of my career. And so to go into this new career with the idea that AI might actually free up some of my time as a future physician so that I can be more engaged in the human side of medicine is is really quite hopeful.
2: Uh, And I think this is a really um, good segue to sort of our final topics for today, which is the ethics around using AI in medicine. You both have mentioned earlier that this would be pulling from big data sets. And then so that brings up to mind for us, like we talk a lot about patient confidentiality and privacy in our training. um, And so in addition to that, like we're curious what other ethical considerations are sort of top of mind for these topics.
5: So yeah, this has been a really kind of interesting integration of AI and then looking to the ethics because from my personal view, I think that the ethics of AI are not really very different from the ethics of medicine generally. I think that there are particular considerations in the case of AI-related technologies the same way that we have particulars of, you know, NICU decision making or brain-related interventions or psychiatry. I think that a lot of the issues that I've sort of found that AI has brought up are really perennial issues within ethics. It's just they're taking on a new face now. And so, you know, you've mentioned a couple already with respect to privacy and confidentiality. And so we have systems in place that enable the exploration of clinical data for the purposes of generating medical knowledge. And we've done that through a research ethics lens. And so I think that one of the main questions there is in moving this forward, We want to figure out how medicine as an institution can earn and maintain trust of publics, of all people, to be worthy of holding that data. Because there is a lot of mistrust at present, particularly among groups who have been historically disadvantaged by these sorts of practices. And so I think that there are different challenges with respect to different groups within the Canadian population. And then again, we're getting into something which is very topical now and is an area where a lot of people are focusing on equity in medicine, coming to the realization that perhaps, you know, the equality mantra that has sort of been at the surface of medical practice is perhaps not living up to what we thought it was. And so now there's more discussions about equity. And I think that for AI, this is kind of the main issue that we would be looking at right now.
3: Yeah, and touching on that as well, like the idea of equity, I think we also have to ask a broader question where AI is very interesting. It's something cutting edge and it's appealing to us as physicians because it's an area of growth. And also as individuals living in North America, we're surrounded by a lot of technology. We see the benefits of that technology and think, can it translate into the clinical world, both for my practice and improving my patients' quality of care? But I think a larger question is that we're dedicating a lot of time and resources and increasingly more to the study of this area. And does that come at the expense of other research questions and other areas that are equally important, but maybe not as sexy as AI in medicine is to us and to some of the people who fund research? So that's another important question we need to ask.
5: That's an excellent point. I mean, if we look at even the current pandemic, the most effective strategies have been those that we've known about since the Spanish flu, you know. So I do think you bring up a really important point about um, allocating our resources in a way that is more aligned with benefit rather than what is new.
4: So then moving forward with this
5: research and then the outcomes
4: of integrating AI into medicine, how do we ensure that we're serving patients who are currently being marginalized by the healthcare system, especially given that AI, it sounds like is based on, you know, historical data, large data sets. And we know that a lot of our foundational research, the majority of our foundational research is based on a white male population. And even when we get down to animal specimens, male animals as well.
5: Yeah, I think this is the hugest issue that we're facing right now because AI, in terms of developing models, they can work very, very well and they appear to work very, very well. But then the next question is for whom do they work very well? You know, there's a number of ways in which this has sort of revealed itself through machine learning, but really it is kind of founded on the patterns that are currently present in medicine, which is, you know, if you are wealthier, if you are affluent, if you're from certain areas of the city, of the country, you tend to have quicker access to care, you face less barriers to care, You enter a hospital without the concern of facing potential prejudice or potential stereotypes um, that might be associated with particular identities. And so all of these little things, they all add up within the data and affect the modeling of those relationships in a number of different ways. And so even though there's a lot of conversation about, you know, if you see it in headlines, it's AI is biased or mutant algorithm or racist algorithm, something like that. And it's really sort of misattributing the cause. And there have been scholars who have studied this for a very long time, Krimberly Crenshaw, Dorothy Roberts. These are folks who have really studied these intersections for quite some time and have elucidated just how complex these relationships are. So some of those folks have pointed out how there may be more prevalence of particular diseases within particular groups. And over time, there is a confusion Of something of a particular group having an inherent risk factor for the development of some of those conditions. And we've known for a while, but even it's more apparent now that this has been a shortcut this has been something that is not inherent to this population, that there isn't some sort of biological underpinning of most of the things that we're talking about. It's reflective of historically racist practices and things that are here in our society right now that a lot of folks have been illuminating ways that we can correct and mitigate against these kinds of things. And so ultimately, if you change those structures, if you change our own implicit biases, if you change our world to reflect what it should be, You won't have bias in AI anymore, and you'll have something that's more reflective of, you know, the causal nature of medical problems rather than, you know, the social determinants that ideally
2: should not be there. Wow. I think that was so refreshing. And it's so incredible because these conversations are happening at the medical school level. I think there's a real big appetite and um, willingness at the institutional level, nationally, internationally, to really hone in on these really, really important topics of equity and inclusion and true diversity, given so much of our colonial history um, and the current issues that we face here on Turtle Island. So it's incredible to hear that there's sort of this acknowledgement and very much priority from our researchers and clinicians who are leading this work so that gives me a lot of optimism actually for the work that's to come and from what it sounds like i'm hearing that ai isn't necessarily racist but it's more so exposing the racism that is so often hidden and that is opaque in our day-to-day lives yeah it systematizes
5: something in a way that we don't ordinarily see So there was an example of an algorithm in the States that was implemented, and it was designed to optimize scheduling. There's always a certain proportion of patients who don't show up to their appointments. Uh, The algorithm was designed to predict no-show appointments, and then it would double-book patients into that spot. So all means it seemed as though it was an intent to you know try and make sure that all slots were filled with patients, more patients could be seen. However, it was actually, I forget if the person was a nurse or an administrator who was actually kind of monitoring the schedule. And so over some time they started noticing that the patients who were showing up having been double booked were generally black patients. And so when they looked into the algorithm, they actually realized that the algorithm had learned that patients who are Black are more likely to be predicted as no-shows for their appointment. But we obviously know that that's not at all a causal relationship and reflects structural barriers to accessing care. And so again, this has kind of prompted really significant conversations with respect to how all of these factors actually undermine people's ability to seek health, to access healthcare and to be healthy. Again, this almost leaves me feeling optimistic. I mean,
4: I know that the marginalized groups in our population have been shining spotlights on racism and barriers to care for so long. And I think our institutions, myself included, are just starting to come and see what's being illuminated by those spotlights. But it almost sounds like working on AI and developing these technologies serves as an additional spotlight on some areas that we might not otherwise consider to address.
2: And I think this is a really great spot to sort of transition into. If there was one takeaway that you would hope our listeners go away with from this conversation, is there something like a key takeaway that you would hope listeners go away with?
3: So my uh, key takeaway would be that as our workplace changes, I think it's important to develop and hone those skills that will really set us apart from AI and the machine learning algorithms that will provide that added benefit to our patients. So it's not that we're working to beat the AI at what it does well, but rather complement the deficiencies of these machine learning algorithms and emphasizing the human aspect of, of medicine.
5: I think mine are fairly similar. I would say that ideally look to take the best of both, take the best of humanity, take the best of machine learning and put them together because we're all working toward the goal of improving patient health. It's really what we're trying to do. And so you take the best of both worlds. And in order to do that, I think that we really need to embrace complexity and embrace uncertainty because it's kind of a constant truth throughout medicine, throughout science, that as we get more information, decision-making becomes more complex, not less. And so I think that we can make better decisions but not necessarily less complex decisions. And so part of moving forward involves really embracing that complexity and engaging with it, again, toward kind of that common goal of bettering healthcare systems and bettering patient health.
4: That's wonderful. That's certainly what I'm taking away from today. So I appreciate you both sharing so much of your knowledge and your
2: experience with us. We're so grateful for your time and we're so excited that you were able to share insights with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. This was fun.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. McCroudon and Dr. Yusuf making it really clear that moving forward, clinicians and scientists need to work hand in hand to ensure that AI is answering the big questions that benefit our patients and the healthcare system as a whole. It's exciting to think that we are in medicine at a time of such collaboration and innovation. One thing that
0: we wanted to highlight is the emphasis on an evidence-based approach to ensure optimal integration of AI into clinical practice. It's a good reminder that in medicine, the field is constantly evolving, and any fundamental shifts need to have a good foundation improving proven, equitable health
1: benefits to patients themselves. For our fact check for this episode, in case our listeners would like to learn more about this topic, we've linked below some of the resources shared by our guests in our show notes. These resources include some of the studies that our guests talked about, as well as highlighting the CanMed's roles that Dr. Yusuf was mentioning, which you may have heard before as abilities or qualities that are highlighted in exemplary healthcare delivery. Thank you very much to
0: Dr. Yusuf and Dr. McCradden once again for taking time to give us such a great introduction to artificial intelligence in medicine. If there's another topic you'd like to see us cover next, send us a message or tweet at us. We can be found on social media at The ID Podcast
1: on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Finally, we'd like to extend a big thank you to everyone else who made this episode possible. Our research and episode director, Prasida, the writing team, which consisted of Kathy, Natalie, and Omri, our editor, Prasida, the host for the episode, Kathy and Natalie, our co-hosts, Naman and Mike, for this episode, as well as a thank you to Isabella Stefanova for our music that you hear at the beginning and the end of our episodes, as well as the rest of our ID Podcast team, Grinder, Daniel, and Lucy. Once again, this has been the Infectious Dialogue podcast, where we
0: explore the stories of medicine and the people behind them. Stay safe and stay well.